Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. So very, very welcome this evening to what I hope will be a very special and unusual evening here at the Unheard Club. We want to be beyond politics, beyond these little corners of science and religion and culture where all of these arguments are taking place in separate silos because a lot of the most interesting stuff, a lot of the most meaningful things happen in the spaces in between. And there are very few people who are able to navigate those spaces. And I think we have one of them with us here tonight. It's very kind of you. Yeah, I don't need to give him too much of an introduction, but um, obviously Nick Cave is an incredible musician who has been performing for, I think more than four decades. I think that's right. Something like that. Um, over a variety of styles. He began as a, as a punk Gothic performer in the beginnings of the ends of the 70s, beginning of the 80s through lyrical, beautiful ballads, right up to the more recent material, which is much more celestial, I would say, experimental, poetic, um, always evolving, always changing, always relevant. But what's interesting and what is so special is that he's broken out of just music. He is now increasingly also, as well as an actor, a screenwriter, he is also a writer and a thinker and a talker. Um, his beautiful book, um, faith, hope, and carnage. Thank you. Uh, which, which is which is what we are partly here to talk about. Came out recently, but he has done a tour of in conversation events where he's just talking, and he has an amazing website called the Red Hand Files, where fans and people who to whom he means a lot write in with problems and questions, and he answers them and communicates directly with them. So he he has been on a journey, and this is part of that. Um, yeah, so, it's, it's so welcome. A, it's thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, actually, um, and to talk to you people and see how it goes. Yes, I'm a little nervous, to be honest. <laughs> so something about unheard that makes me a little nervous. Well, I can't think what that would be. <laughs> I thought where we might start is something that really struck me from reading the book and kind of immersing myself in your songs in, in recent weeks is this sense that to a, to a superficial eye, to an to a immediate observation, it might feel like you're unrecognizably changed since the early years. Um, you know, the, those early gigs, birthday party, where you're kind of writhing around and it's full of noise and almost screaming and it's full of anger, and now you are much more at peace or you seem 
you know, you are a church-going person. You've, you've had, I think, two archbishops interview you in the past yeah, two true. months. You're there. Yeah. The archbishops are lining There's up. There's one other one, I think. There's one to come. L- living, but Liv- still, I haven't done. You know, so it might seem that you're completely the opposite from being this, this counter-cultural person to being a conservative person. But what comes through is actually there are, there are strands that connect the earlier you to the new you. How, how would you start by explaining to people whether you're the same person? Well, I, mm, um, there's a bunch of things you said in there that, that, that I'm not sure is necessarily uh, true. Um, I, I, there may be a conservative edge to things, but that, that word I would use cautiously. Um, but there's certainly, um, I think, a similar delight I get that I got in the early days uh, that I get these days, which is sort of fucking with people to some degree. <laughs> there is something about uh, living outside the expectations of other people that is uh, energizing. And um, certainly in, in the old days with the birthday party and that sort of thing, they were extremely energetic, extremely, I would say, violent, mm. uh, aggressive uh, concerts done by, a, by a, a not fully formed person, shall we say, that held the world in contempt as a sort of default setting, pretty much everything. And th- that was the kind of energy of those, those um, concerts. And that has changed completely, I would say, to the way that I am now, in that, that I, I see the world uh, in a completely different way. Uh, and see human beings in a completely different way. I see the sort of brokenness of human beings, but also the unbelievable value, value or valuableness of human beings. And this is something that I could never imagined I would have felt back then. Um, and I think that has something to do with becoming a more complete person through a series of things that have happened to me through my life, or that happened to us all, probably. There's also a sense, I mean, if we go into the, the creative process, which you write beautifully about in this book, there's a, a con- thread of continuity there too, because there's a sense that these songs are not just something you're synthesizing out of nothing. They're almost out there and you're kind of trying to find them. There's almost a, a, a when you talk about it, it almost feels like there's a, a magical or a mystical component to the, to the yeah. creative process. I, I wish there was more of that. But actually, um, my creative process is extremely rigorous uh, and um, it's just hard work. And it begins at nine o'clock in the morning. I sit down and I start writing, if I'm writing songs, which I am at the moment. And it finishes at 5.30 in the afternoon. And then I don't do any other creative stuff after that, apart from things like this shall we say, but basically within that context, there, within that time, there is uh, a, a very troubled relationship with my muse and with uh, that is fraught and full of anxiety and not a very nice place at all. And, and what I'm getting is, is meagre scraps of, of songs that slowly make their way into something that's of some kind of value. Um, 
that the, 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 the mystical thing that I'm sort of, that there's a big pencil in the sky that's writing my lyrics for me. It's not really like that. I wish it was more like that. But. Is there, though, a sense that these songs kind of get a life of their own? And, and you've written about how sometimes they almost seem to predict what happens or they are, they, they, they seem to trans Yes, yeah. what we would consider the rational world. Yeah, I, I think there is an element of that that goes on. It's it's hard to talk about without sounding ridiculous, but I think that there is, from my experience, the songs seem to know a little bit more about what's going on uh, than than I myself do. Um, and even though I'm working in a very conscious way to get songs written, I don't have any control over their outcome in the end. I find I've just written stuff um, that often surprises me that these songs, I mean, the songs that I'm writing now surprise me hugely as to where they're actually going. Where, Not where? that I really want to talk about that because okay. it's just <laughs> too early to talk about that. But I'm, you know, I have like, I don't know, 12, 13 songs that, are, that, that feel good and they are just in a direction that I had no, uh, that, that I realise I've actually had no control over the whole time. Do you feel like freedom and a sense of being kind of relaxed is part of the creative process? Um, I mean, this is where maybe kind of the, the, the atmosphere of wider society can be relevant to that. Do you, do you feel like, I mean, you, you talked about how, for example, um, there's a quote from one of your books the the vitalizing element in art is the one that baffles or challenges or outrages as a young musician i felt it was my sacred duty to offend there's that kind of break things scream and shout yeah that's part of the creative process do you do, is that still part of the creative yeah. process yeah i mean uh, it's yeah i mean i come from a general i don't want to sit here and say that my generation was better than your generation or or whatever, but I did come from a generation where there was self-evident truths that I still fully believe in, such as free speech being a good thing, that, um, that, that, are, that are an energizing factor towards what I do. Um, and the idea that you uh, can offend people or that your songs can be dangerous enough, let's say that people uh, are scared of them, is exciting for me. Um, it's not something that you should show, that, that I personally feel I need to shy away from. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I have a bunch of songs that are, um, I'm not so sure I write them in that same way anymore, but I, I have other interests, I think. It's not that I'm, that I shy away from that sort of thing because I'm worried about the outcome or what people might think. It's just that I have other fish to fry these days. I mean, this is not getting, this is not drawing politics into it, but do you feel like the, the, the atmosphere of the culture more generally is, is now more, people have to be more careful? Um, How long's it been? <laughs> 12 minutes. No, I, <laughs> you know, we, 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 talk about, we talk about the, the, the space in between these things. And actually, I think that it's no, a really important it's... thing. The idea that this isn't a kind of cultural war question. Or it's, not, it's not about, you know, head banging, being furious about council culture. It's like, does this actually impinge on the creative faculty well, in some way? Of course it does. I mean, if, you, if you're writing into a censorious mood, 
um, a fragile, uh, brittle mood, uh, and you're worried about that, then of course you 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 second guess what you're writing about, and this is just not good for the business of songwriting, as far as I'm concerned. Does that happen to you? Have you have you had any contact with that? Second guessing that self censorship. Oh, should I say this or should I not? Yeah. Only, only as much as I would have ten years ago or twenty years ago. I mean, you always think, is this uh, a good thing or, or a bad thing? But you don't. I don't think of it on terms of whether it's an offensive thing or not. I just think, is this a good line or is this a bad line? Um, so, no, I, I, I don't feel that I do that. However, I, I do feel it is a, uh, that there is, has been, I, I would say, uh, a kind of wet blanket that's been thrown over art in general. Uh, and this is just not good. However, what is, I, I, what is that wet blanket? It's just a, what is a wet blanket? What is, <laughs> <laughs> what is that? What is that wet blanket? What, what is the wet blanket? Yeah. Well, well, uh, a, a squeamish, censorious, a merciless, uh, um, you know, the, the idea that there are certain things that are, you can get away with saying and certain things that you can't get away with saying. I, I get tired of hearing people say, well, you can't say this. You know, I think this, but you can't say this. And that, that's reflective of a mood, but I don't think it's true. I don't think there are things that you can't say. You just need to take the consequences of saying certain sorts of things. Now, these these are brutal and 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 merciless and uh, in, uh, unjust, unjust, um, and sometimes uh, and it's distressing to see these things happen. But at the same time, I work in songwriting in particular, and the form is abstract in its nature. So you can say all sorts of things through through songwriting that approaches these sort of matters in a crab-like or sideways abstracted way. And you can actually say all sorts of, you can say all sorts of things actually in songwriting without, um, you, uh, uh, we, we were talking, we had lunch together and we were talking about, I'm talking about a particular song of mine called Stagger Lee. Um, this is a, Famous Bad Seeds song. I don't know if anyone here knows that song. And, and there, within that song, uh, it, it sort of, uh, is offensive on, uh, many, many levels. Um, I won't go through all the different sorts of people that it offends, but it's pretty much everybody. And it's a, a highly problematic song. Um, but, it is, it, it, and it's sort of spoken sung over this crawling music, predatory music. But um, in all my days of playing this song, and that's hundreds of times of looking out into the audience, I have never seen anybody uh, looking kind of askance or offended at it. They're just swept up within the, uh, within the music itself. So, this, so what I mean to say is that there's all sorts of things that can be said within the context of, of music and art that's uh, problematic, but at the same time, uh, just hugely enjoyable. You've talked about that, that strange year of 2020, and you've talked about a mood that was sort of released in the world in 2020 that you 
picked up. White Elephant um, is the song oh. on, on in Carnage. Um, and in it, you talk about this sense of rage um, being released in the world. I just wanted to wonder what, you, what, you, what your feelings are about that. About that song? Yeah, well, how, how you experienced that very intense, very strange year, basically. I mean, it was, a, it was a really changing year for the culture. Obviously, the lockdowns were happening. That was really intense. Um, how did, what did you observe during that? Yeah. Within, within the culture or per, yeah. on a personal level? Both. Um, well, I kept thinking I was going to die early on. <laughs> that, was, that was not good. Yeah. You know, that we didn't know what was going to happen to us. I mean, I remember that very, very well mm. of literally walking out into a crowd and not knowing if this was like some sort of the big one mm. or something like that. Um, however, uh, and, but, but what happened to me personally is that I suddenly couldn't tour for a year, I had a whole a year's worth of touring booked, and I remember being with my manager and him uh, on the phone, and we're finding out everything's cancelled. We're not going on tour, and this was—I uh, had 15 minutes of um, feeling like, "Oh my God, my life!" And then uh, after that, this sudden burst of joy <laughs> that I wasn't going on tour, and I suddenly had a year off. Um, and within that year, that, the, the, it was like this vacuum of all this stuff started to pour out of all, all other things that I hadn't had the time to do. Uh, so it was hugely creative for me that year, including writing this, this book, which set me off on another course in a way. Um, and there were things that were going, of course, there were things that were going on within that year that were uh, alarming and kind of... We were all swept up into some degree and then reactive towards. I mean, White Elephant, I think, is, is uh, a, a beautiful song and a beautiful lyric, I think, that tries to, uh, dares to be uh, surreal and comic about what was going on within the Black Lives Matter movement uh, or, or certainly the overreach that, that we saw after a while of, uh, and and what and how that was animating the the right, you know, that's about as close as I can get to writing a like a political song. Because normally you think politics would kill a song, is that right? You've... Well, it, well, uh, personally, I, I'm personally I don't much like politics in in music. I just don't per personally. I just don't like it. I don't like it because I don't like being told what I should or should not think. You know, uh, there are protest songs that are brilliant and did their work, and of course we need them. But personally, they're not the sort of songs that I that I listen to. You know, like if we if we if we look at someone like Nina Simone, she did a, a whole raft of protest songs, but they're not the songs that, to me, are the are the, the songs that really um, that, that are the songs that that are really. Uh, full of rage. It's her love songs that she manages to sing these beautiful love songs. But you can feel this sort of boiling uh, rage underneath everything. And that's much more interesting to me than hearing her sing, um, uh, uh, you know, civil rights protest song. I guess what, what I'm thinking about when we talk about the, these common threads 
is almost like much more than politics or much more than these minor issues. The, the big rebellion that connects what you've been talking about with the Archbishop of Canterbury to your earliest songs is a kind of rejection of a secular rationalist world where magic isn't possible and where things are just a machine. I mean, do you think that that's true? That, that, I mean, do, do you think of yourself as a, as a rational person? Well, I'm certainly skeptical of my beliefs, put it that way. I'm, I'm, uh, I, 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 why I like going to church, why I go to church is because church seems to be, be a kind of ordered place where that, that allows me not to believe as much as it allows me to, uh, allows me to believe. And I have these things, both of these things going on inside me, doubt about things and, and, uh, but not, I don't feel it feels disingenuous in some way to reject these feelings, these intimations and yearnings and um, whisper, whispered intimations and softly spoken feelings about things that, that I don't know what to do with. And they are religious in nature. And I find that I can go into a church that uh, allows me to um, do something with these feelings to organize my spiritual nature, uh, which without church, it's just all over the shop. It's just, and, and I'm an ordered, I'm, I'm a person, I'm an ordered, weirdly ordered person and in, in my work methods. And church, to some degree, is an ordering device as well that I find helpful. You know? mm. You've actually said that you are, religious but not spiritual in that. I mean, is that something? I was just winding people up, I think. <laughs> um, do you think that, do you think that, that ritual though, do you, think, do you think doing things like going to church, doing things like regularly is part of how you access that whole yeah, world? Yeah, I, I think uh, that's, that's with my work. It's, it's sitting at my desk and uh, at, at, at a particular time each day and doing this work is an ordering principle that allows me to, uh, that sort of ring fences my imagination and, and allows me to focus in on things. Uh, and, and church is, is, is a similar way for my for my. Has that always been true? Is this, is this more recent or has that always been the case? With, with my creative life? Well, with your religious life. Well, I've I've always worked cre creatively, no matter what condition I was was in. I've always got up in the morning and done my my work. Um, I've always gone to church on and off, or at least I've go gone to church on and off all through my life since I was actually a choir boy when I was thirteen or something like that. I've continued to to try out church, uh, you know, and. Um, does it feel different in recent yeah, years? Yes, it does. I mean, I used to go to church and find reasons not to believe. Now I go to church, I think, and find reasons to that are a bit more compelling. Mm. There's a, 
What about the figure? I mean, this is going to be like an incredibly unfashionable question, which you probably wouldn't be asked by many other people. But what about the figure of Christ? Yeah, the, what the is uh, it, what is Mojo it? magazine never get to. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it about the figure of Christ that moves you? Yeah, it's 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 weird that because. As far back as I can remember, even as a very small child, I've had uh, an uncommon interest in Christ, um, even as a young boy. Uh, and in church, um, it, it, way before I had any notions of, of God or anything like that, there was just this sort of eerie kind of haunted figure um, that I was just interested in and as if it was kind of bred in me in some kind of way. And so I've always just had an interest and an attraction and, um, I, uh, and a relationship, an emotional relationship with this um, deeply haunted story. And I still do, you know. I, that, that doesn't mean that I buy it all or anything like that. I, I just feel, uh, I just feel I relate in some way to that Christ, the Christ story. Right up, right up to the withdrawal of God, and um, you know, I, I, I just relate. To it. Do you also relate to the devil? Because <laughs> you've done, Nick has done this incredible series of ceramic figurines, sculptures, and they're these like little Staffordshire pottery things, all about the life of the devil. And there are 17 of them, and they're just amazing to see. And I just thought, thank you. Why? <laughs> what brought you to do that? I, I you know, the, the, they are uh, the life of the devil in seventeen. They're like they're like the stations of the cross. Only there's there's seventeen of them, and so they're seventeen little meditations on on the uh, life of the devil being born. And but, but the devil is essentially just this man with horns. And uh, is the devil inherits the earth? He inherits the, the earth. He gets you know he goes to child. war. He comes back from war. He gets married. He kills a child. Um, he is in remorse, he uh, dies a bloody death, and uh, he's, it, it's, it's quite, it's, I'm very proud of these, these, these things, and, um, and I guess, I guess they, they, it's kind of autobiographical in some way, not that I relate to the devil in his evilness, but uh, relate to the devil as a, as a um, as a, a character seeking forgiveness in some way. You've talked in an incredibly moving way about the tragic period that you have gone through recently. You lost your 15-year-old son to a, a terrible accident. Um, and what you did, instead of, I guess, what many people would do, which is close in and hide away from the world, you, you did this extraordinary thing of opening yourself up to the world after that dark time. And, and that's when you started having these in-conversation events and started talking to fans 
What, what has that process done to you, do you think? It, it certainly changed... Um, You know the the sort of regard that I that well the hmm. when my son died I, I just got a lot of uh, letters coming into my house um, that were from people that weren't just sort of commiserating with me but were saying look this has happened to me and uh, and this is what I understand what you're going through. And these things just meant a huge amount to me at the time. Um, and I think they just, they just took a, a, a person that was, uh, was completely demolished and forced me to sort of turn around and look at the world in some way. Some, someone that was kind of completely absorbed with my own um, hurt and despair to sort of turn me inside out to see the world in some way. It was a very beautiful thing. It wasn't immediate, it was a gradual thing. But I think that's what I meant by, by the, the person that we were talking about in, in the birthday party or, or my earlier life as a, as a half-formed person. I think that the death of my son, um, to some degree, completed me as a human being, uh, and and allowed me to turn around and and uh, and see the world uh, and see everyone in it as suffering individuals, as broken individuals, uh, and understanding the this perilous nature of life. Uh, and the value of life, um, and that changed my that just changed my outlook on things hugely and uh, completely. Um, to understand uh, and respect people, uh, all people, um, and there's a sense yeah. in in when you write about it that it almost it created almost like an altered state of consciousness, the, the, the intenseness of that grief. And some of the people writing in who've suffered grief as well um, to the Red Hand Files also talk about that. And it, you know, if, we, if we're talking about the, kind of the, the rational world, the world of normal mechanistic existence, it kind of threw you into yeah, another I, dimension. I, I think that, that grief um, destroys... Uh, what it did for me, it, de it destroyed the, the, that, I just, the world just didn't make sense anymore. It didn't make rational sense to me. And I, I didn't see why I needed to sort of cleave to rational notions about things when it just didn't make any sense. And other things made more sense to me, uh, especially early on. And, and they were the, those feelings of, um, a kind of connection with the otherness of things and the divinity of things. And um, Does that include souls, do you think? Do you believe that... I know a lot of people write into you on Red Hand Files talking about whether they feel that their loved ones who have deceased are still around in some sense. Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that after we go, there is something left behind? Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I know that... Um, 
that I certainly did. Uh, it, it certainly felt necessary for me to. Uh, I mean, I had those. Fe- I certainly had those feelings of, uh, and I I would talk to my son and. Um, uh, but whether whether that's true or not, I think that they are unnecessary or or they certainly help lead you back to uh, to the world um, these feelings and so I, so I have great respect and and compassion for people who have these feelings and and people who are who have spiritual beliefs or religious beliefs, um, and their great need, you know, that that is looked down upon by, um, uh, it's just for some punishing myself by watching um, Dawkins talk about um, <laughs> the, the, the lack of dignity in 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 these sorts of religious beliefs, and that it was like uh, you, you know like having to have a, a a baby with a dummy, you know, and it, it just seems like such a, a heartless um, view of things to to kind speak of, atheist, of yeah, fundamentalist to, to speak of people's uh, deep needs in that way, um, and and it's very much, I think, holding on to these things that may not be true. That are the very things that lead you out of that place. Um, it's it's almost like a different kind of truth, isn't it? I mean, you know, we we mentioned politics earlier, science, religion. There are all these sort of different ways of um, seeing the world. And actually, even in your lyrics, your your symbolic lyrics that are so poetic and kind of get around things rather than just describing them as they are directly. It's like there's a different kind of truth that you can get through writing a song, or maybe there's a different kind of truth you can have through a religious belief. And do you feel that, that, that people are sort of convinced of their own ways of seeing the world and yeah, stuck? Well, if, yeah, I think so. Um, hmm, I mean, that word truth is pretty tricky, and it's not really something that worries me too much. The truth in songwriting, I'm much more, I guess, concerned with uh, authenticity in songwriting, that it feels real and that it feels like like a, uh, a, a belief that's sincerely held within the songs. Um, that moves me much more so that when I listen to uh, a gospel song, even though I may not buy, buy it, it still has the capacity to to move me because it feels sincere. Uh, and once again, I don't have to. My songs don't have to make arguments for for. They don't have to make a case for anything. They just have to feel uh, true and uh, will have to feel authentic. This opening up that you've you've <coughs> gone through in recent years um, to people talking more, coming here. Where, where is it headed, do you think? Um, you know, what, what happens next? For yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't actually know about that. I, I've never really uh, had a very good sense of that. Um, I, I'm just, the, the thing that I do really well is to involve myself fully 
in the particular task at hand. And so that's, um, and not to worry too much about the future. And um, so I, I really don't know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So you're, you're, you're not, I mean, I'm sure you're being asked on all the podcasts and, you know, you're, you're sort of on the cusp of talking a lot more. You're, you're not tempted down that road. I mean, is this, is this a test a po- case? To, to do a podcast. Well, no, but um, to, to, to talk more. I mean, you, you, you did those in conversation events. You talk beautifully. People obviously respond to it really incredibly well. And I think for the reasons I was mentioning that it sort of breaks boundaries do you think maybe there is a, a role for you outside music as well as... You, you mean to go on people's... To just... Podcasts. Yeah, the dodgy <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> to talk more. Talk more, write more. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, you know, the... the I'm, I haven't done this very much, I have to say. And... Um, or this kind of... Uh, an interview which seems to be uh, beyond just the normal interview for me. I mean, I've done thousands of interviews, rock and roll interviews. Um, but this sort of kind of conversation seems to, to be about other things. And, and, I, and it is in itself a, an art form to some degree to be able to talk openly. Which you're very good at. Man. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. But it's kind of you to say. But, um, and so, th- so there is a, there's something about sitting down here that's challenging in a different way for me than to to just do six rock interviews because I've got a record coming out or whatever. Um, that feels, uh, there's a sort of excitement a- around uh, talking openly about ideas and so forth um, that seems, 
You know, I, 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 have, I have noticed that some of the people that I, that I have, without really going into, into names of people, um, a kind of podcast uh, they, they seem to become uh, the nuance goes quite quickly when you're doing certain types of pon- podcasts I think um, there's an audience capture that goes on uh, expectations of, of what you need to think and what you need to say and if you're putting yourself out there you need to hold this position on this thing and this position on that and I don't think in that respect I'm very good for podcasts in the sense that I don't come along with a, a particularly um, sort of pres- prescribed package. I just have my feelings about things and they tend to free float. And So there's – do you understand what I mean? It's a dangerous journey. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. You, you see it all. The, you, see you see it, it with it, podcast hosts, how they very quickly – um, become radicalized. Uh, radicalized, yeah. They become the very thing that they, they, they were told they were in the first place, which they weren't. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird journey, and I'm. I'm they get beware. <laughs> beware, Freddie. Still here. Still if, you need, if you ever need someone to talk to, <laughs> to sort of reel you back in. So I'd like to go back to the very first answer. Um, which was, I think you were saying on the one hand, you like to fuck people up. And on the other hand, you, uh, you understood brokenness. And that's a very interesting dichotomy. Um, and, uh, most people in their kind of life journey understand brokenness a bit later. Uh, but y- I wonder when, when, if you could talk about your journey of understanding brokenness, because the, the other thing you said that was very interesting was that, uh, you were fascinated by Christ at a very young age, and Christ is the symbol of brokenness in many ways. Yeah. So, was that? Did you understand brokenness very early? What, where did that come along in the journey? Uh, I may have had some basic understanding of what that might be, and our flawed nature and abstract notions about these sorts of things, or theoretical notions about these sorts of things. But it was only after. Uh, the death of my of Arthur, um, that I understood it fundamentally uh, as a uh, that I inhabited it myself of a uh, someone who'd been um, dismantled um, and and uh, yeah and so so. I think that that's the thing that changed everything for me. Um, does, did, that, that, does that is, did that answer your question? Did you did you understand broke? So when you talk about what did Christ represent to you? Well, he 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 he. he what was the sim- What did he symbolise to you? He symbolised to me um, <laughs> different things throughout my life, but mostly of uh, of. I mean, mostly the the scene that really resonates with me is is the scene of Christ in in the garden, and uh, and the withdrawal of God, uh, and the crying out uh, into the void. Um, that that had a um, that's always had a huge uh, emotional impact 
on me. Not so much that I really relate to it. I just uh, um, just find it, it, it incredibly compelling um, that this man who is in, in Holy Week, who enters uh, Jerusalem and is lauded uh, as the as the Son of God uh, is is in the pretty much the next scene is kneeling in the garden, completely abandoned and alone. And I f I find that um, I find that really compelling, as a in so many ways. Um, I was wondering if you just comment a bit on your relationship to Leonard Cohen's work. Um, this well, is Leonard Cohen, in case you didn't hear. Leonard Cohen. Of Leonard well. Cohen, yeah. I mean, I mean, I've always been a huge fan of Leonard Cohen. Um, I was grew up in a country town in, in uh, Victoria. It was um, bright and hot and Australian. And, uh, but I had feelings about things that didn't correlate to the environment that I grew up in, shall we say. And it wasn't until I, till I heard Leonard Cohen played to me by... A friend one day they'd found this record, and uh, the moments that was songs of love and hate. Uh, I was maybe fourteen or fifteen or something like that, and uh, the first song Avalanche. I stepped into an avalanche or something. This voice came out that had this gravitas to it that and and that, that just um, it just blew me away. And and that particular record is absolutely uh, fundamental to me. Um, he, he also ha had a journey from, from being very dark, very angry uh, kind of records to something which were more, um, they, were, they were gentler and more uh, resolved or something. Um, but I, I, I do like that first record. Most of all, it had a huge, that, the songs for love and hate had a huge impact on me. I never met him, unfortunately, but. Do you listen to any incredibly embarrassing, cheesy, tinny, <laughs> what's the like least Nick Cave thing that you ever listened to? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I don't. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's, a, a, try. there's a guy here. Hey, um, I, I, I love in Into My Arms when you talk about angels and you bring in angels into it. And um, we've talked about Christ and we've talked about brokenness of humanity, but this is kind of in between spiritual being, like the angels and the saints, I suppose. Like you say in that song, I don't believe in them, but what do they mean to you? Well, you know, there's, there's a whole, in regard to things like that within the Christian religion, there's some weird stuff, right? The, the Christian religion in itself to me is deeply strange and there's a whole lot of um, fantastical sorts of things that, that are in it. But I kind of like that too. I like the strangeness of, of I like the... Uh, the sort of challenge of, of believing or handing something of myself over to something that just doesn't make any sense. And angels are one of those things for sure. Um, 
I, I like that aspect of, of the Christian, the strangeness of Christianity in particular. Um, uh, it's, I find that, I find something in that. I don't know about angels in particular, but I'm not sure I believe in angels. But. Maybe. There's a lady over here in a red top. Um, f first of all, um, thank you, Nick. Um, there was a time in my life when I felt very broken and your words just meant everything when, when most people's didn't. So thank you. Um, but I would say so something else about your words. They, they often made me laugh. And I wondered what makes you laugh. Um, my words. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's, it's funny because uh, like Leonard Cohen, actually, um, we're both humorists probably beyond anything. I mean, uh, admittedly, Songs of Love and Hate isn't that funny, but it's certainly got a, it's got something going on in it. But, um, and, and it's, it's often struck me as strange, I guess, that someone who I, I see myself, much of what I do is essentially comic writing. You know, I sit down and I, and I know that I'm writing like a funny song. And there's not many musicians that do that, you know, um, yet I'm seen as, you know, a, a dark. Did you call me that? <laughs> someone, someone called me dark. Yeah, you know that that it's that it's all kind of bleakness and darkness. But um, it's so. Thank you for seeing that. Seeing the funny side. Seeing the funny side of things. <laughs> um, uh, Jacob, I recognise from Unheard, deputy editor. Jacob from Unheard. Nick, thanks for that. Um, you spoke earlier about feeling a sense of completeness now. A, a, a sense of what? Completeness. You feel complete. I just wonder whether. Do you feel complete? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. Um, and I suppose the follow-up to that, which probably isn't as good a question, is um, if you do feel complete, do you genuinely think that an artist can create something in that sort of state of mind? I mean, looking back at some of the music and art that you've created when in those times when you weren't necessarily feeling as complete, um, I mean, it's fantastic. And I sort of wonder whether you can create good art um, when you are feeling that whole? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a very good question. And I, I even when I said that word... Uh, I think you said more complete. Yeah, I, I didn't feel... Yeah, I, I, um, you know, it, it always strikes me as, as that we always feel where, wherever we are at this point of time, this sort of sense of arrival somewhere. But you look back and you realise that it's just never been the case. Um, I, I, I am always looking back uh, with a sort of faint feeling of embarrassment at, at what I was up to even, even a year ago. Um, you know, and, and I guess this is, this is um, so, so you, you have this feeling uh, of arrival, but I don't think, you know, I don't think you ever really arrive. Um, I do have a kind of feeling of repetition, I guess, that I'm circling around certain ideas and coming back to the same things over and over again. Um, but yeah, completeness wasn't a, wasn't. 
You've, you've also just been propelled by this drive for the nude. It, it seems like, you know, you, 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 from the town in Australia where you grew up all the way to launching your first career, leaving Australia, reinventing yourself, new styles, new horizons, like something in you is propelled forward. Yeah, I wouldn't use that word reinvention either. I, I just think it's, uh, um, th there is, in, 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 um, I, well, first of all, I work with people who are uh, extremely creative and, and risk takers, like Warren, Warren Ellis, for example, is a born risk taker with music. And so he, I have people that I'm on, I'm on a journey with uh, and and he simply will not go near anything that he feels we've done before musically. So that pushes me in that way to some degree. And I, I feel that same way about words too, that they need to reflect where I am authentically, as we were talking about. And that changes, you know. Um, and there's just, there's just no, there's nothing in uh, trying to do the thing that you've done before. I mean, it's just a losing battle. Um, so, so you move, you move forward, forever forward, you know. Um, and if, if I do have a kind of faint pride in what I've done, it is that, 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 um, that I continue to dismantle the things that have gone before by the things that I'm doing now. And that, that's maybe what the creative, uh, the, the, the creative process is. It's, it's an act of murder to, to, the, to the work that's gone before. Not getting fixed. Not getting fixed and, and moving on. Whether it's, whether it's to something better or not, I don't know. I don't really think of the things in that way. Just something different. Yeah, hello. Um, another question related to Leonard Cohen, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, um, a very famous songwriter said that as he got older, Leonard Cohen songs were, became more like prayers. Uh, and I know it's something you've talked about on the... Red hand file. Do, do you are you conscious of that as you write some some of your songs? That the, their prayers. Yeah, that his songs became. A, and to be cheeky, just another two part. Just get another one. I just read a recent interview with you. You said the the days of the macho or the slightly macho frontman might be over because you you lean into the crowd. You you sort of uh, commune with the crowd more than other singers might do. Can you just say something about that, maybe? No, I, I think that they are to some degree. Um, prayers, yeah. Um, I mean, they're not, um, uh, you know, I, th I think Ghostine in particular, that I don't know what this new record's going to be like, but was really an attempt at the time. I was in a, in a, a deep sort of existential crisis when I was making that. Um, and it, it was, some way, I, I feel that record was some way to um, to deal with the spiritual uh, condition of my son who died, that it felt like those songs reached into the unknown toward him. And that felt at the time of making that record, the purpose of that record, that was its it, it was a way in which I could um, somehow uh, affect his spiritual condition in a positive way. That's how I was thinking at the time. 
Um, and and as I said before, like he, it's, he heard the like he heard the music. Well, that that he um, I I I mean, this sounds crazy, but I, I was worried about him. Um, and so I, I felt that the, these songs were a way of reaching toward him. Um, and I still worry about that to some degree, even though I obviously also understand that he may not be there. Uh, it doesn't stop me thinking these, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing. I mean, it it expands out into everything, really. That that of course God may not exist. Let's say. However, um, I don't. Th I I think on some level um, that is a detail. You know, um, it's a mere detail, and it's what we do what we do ourselves that. Um, that we need to do ourselves in some way to reach beyond ourselves is the point of this sort of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm not really explaining that very well, but... I think um, you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think we all think you are. Um, this actually just makes me think of what we were talking about right at the start, which is that somehow that... In a way, the, both of the last two questions, which is this search for something more, this for the new, the creative impulse, yes, which is connected to the religious impulse, yeah. in a way, it, it's the same thing, and and it feels like that was always there with yeah. you. So, so somehow, even if you're taking heroin and writhing around on the stage and semi-naked, and it looks completely, you know, unrecognizable <laughs> to sitting on this sofa chatting to me, it's the same impulse, which is sort of somehow saying that. You know, you, you're looking for more. Is that yeah. true? Yes, that, that's right. And it's, um, <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, as a songwriter, what I'm trying to do is write songs. And I, and I want to write the songs with the fullest heart I possibly can um, and as open to things as I possibly can. And the, the atheist notion, which often seems like the most rational, I get it, right? I, I understand the atheist impulse. I have a little, you know, Hitchens inside me too, right? <laughs> but but I'm also, um, I also want to be able to expand the parameters of what I do creatively to, to, to encompass everything. And so that kind of, for me, that um, the Hitchens is just bad for the business of songwriting. You know, that, that little skeptical, that little skeptical voice. Yeah. Um, and you know, so your, your inner Dawkins is my inner Dawkins. It's just bad for, it's bad for art. He won't like that. <laughs> you talked a lot about kind of having a kind of pulse on the culture and the mood within the culture. Um, I want to kind of ask about that historically and how it looks now. So from, I guess, the early days of like the birthday party and the, the bad seeds, there's probably a very different set of like orthodoxies you might have been kicking against, unaware or yes. aware of, um, and how that kind of looks in 2023 and whether you see that as being relevant. Um, 
haven't explained that very well. No, but. no, I, I totally get what you mean. I mean, when we talk about being offensive or, or you know, in the punk rock days, let's say, where, it, where offensiveness was um, the sacred duty that, we, that you, you mentioned, uh, it was very much to kick against the establishment. You know, that's, that's what, what, what was, was, was happening. And um, I think that was not me. I was never doing that. Uh, I was never that. Uh, I, I was much more concerned with um, irritating my peers and people that were, um, and, my, and my audience. Uh, or, and and by what, I, what I mean by irritating is, is to sort of ignite their imaginations and get them thinking about things and challenge them about things and, and this sort of stuff. This felt like the way to make good art, you know, was to confront people. And, um, and so I was not really interested in that kind of, of, of dealing with, the, with, you know, I mean, through the punk rock thing with Thatcher and all of this sort of stuff that was the sort of energy behind uh, a kind of a hatred of the establishment and that sort of, which was the energy behind that music. I came from Australia, which without those same political, that same, I didn't, I didn't have that political fury, uh, but I was much more concerned with fucking with people uh, on a different kind of a level, a different kind of thing. And I was always sort of at, uh, at odds with my peers, I would say. Um, so what's the equivalent today? That in, you asked about yeah. 2023. If, how do you fuck with people today? What, what could you say now? That You'd be a conservative. Is that the today's equivalent? Go to church? Yeah, yeah, you go to church and be a conservative, yeah. <laughs> I really loved the birthday party albums when I was a teenager. And um, obviously the energy and the humour, as other people have mentioned. But... Um, what I really identified with was the, your, the sense of alienation. And, um, I mean, other people from the last couple of questions, it's kind of fits in quite well that, you know, I was growing up in Yorkshire in the seventies. I felt alienated <laughs> for various reasons. I just wonder what it is about your childhood. Do you think there was, is, was there anything particular about growing up maybe just because you were in Victoria or was there anything particular about your childhood, things that happened to you that made you feel as a, as an, an alienated yeah. individual. I, I actually had, uh, I grew up in a country town and, and for the first 10 or 11 years, everything went beautifully. I, I had loving parents. I lived in a, I had a free range childhood. They, my mother used to just kick me out of the house at, in the morning and say, come back for dinner. And I would just, you know, it's like a, Spielberg movie of the kids on their bikes and all that sort of stuff. It was a very free, very beautiful, uh, uncomplicated, happy, uh, happy, happy childhood. Uh, but there was something inside me that started to uh, just things just that just started to sort of attract trouble. And as soon as I became 11, 12, high school, things just, I just felt uh, not so much alienated, but just I had to burst out of this fucking country town that I was stuck in. Um, and things just just became, I just ignited in a, in a wholly different way. So like and a restless. Energy. Yeah, yeah, and, and a need to just get get out. And 
Um, and, and that happened. I got, uh, basically kicked out of high school and I went to, got sent to Melbourne to, to a boarding school. And that was a whole other set of disasters. But there was that, it wasn't alienation so much as, um, a need to get away from, uh, the sort of small, what I, what I saw at the time as the, as the smallness of things. And you don't feel that anymore? Oh, I think I still feel that. Yeah. Uh, on a on a spiritual level. Mm. So just riffing off a few other questions, um, you teased that you were going on tour and it occurred to me that one of the overlooked aspects of being creative is deciding what to perform, deciding what you're going to express on a tour when you're preparing a tour or anything like that. And with the context of describing that your attitude towards people and the world had changed quite radically over the last few years. When you look back on your body of work, are there songs or periods that you think won't get an airing anymore? And if I could be cheeky and challenge you to be specific on why. I think he wants you to name your least favorite song. <laughs> no, I, th I think you want me to name my most problematic songs. Is that right? I'm not getting at that per se, no, but. Well, you can well go down there no, I mean, there's, there's certainly um, songs that I wouldn't play these days that I wrote bef before, but, you know, earlier on. But it's not because I'm worried about what people might think about them. They just were written by a 19, 20-year-old kid, and they're, they're just not very wise songs. And they're, and, and they're just saying things that, I have absolutely no idea what I'm even trying to say within those songs. They just sort of sound good and they, um, you know, so there's songs like that that I just couldn't engage with anymore. So I don't really play that sort of stuff. But, the, but there's a lot of old songs that I still play because they, they are exciting to play and I still feel something about them. But um, Are there any songs you don't like? When someone comes and says, I love this, and you, does your heart sink? And they go, I wish you hadn't said that. Um, there's, there's songs I like less. Uh, I wouldn't like to say. It's a bit mean, isn't it? You know, to your songs. But there's ex some extremely famous songs in regard to my catalogue uh, that, you know, that, that, that is not perhaps my favorite stuff. Okay, well, we'll, we'll have to guess. I don't, I don't like to, it just feels, uh, they may also be the songs that people really treasure and they think, oh God, I've liked. <laughs> yeah. We can probably all understand your, your profound religious faith, but we might have difficulty with your support for the church as a bureaucracy and an organisation, given all the difficulties both Catholicism and Anglicanism have had. So, as it's Holy Week, can you explain? That, that's, that's a very good, very good question, and it comes up all the time um, that people uh, just won't have it. Like, just look at what the church has done, and, and, the, and, and of course, it's... Uh, it's responsible for, for some t t heinous historically, uh, and and to this day, it's. But for me, this for me, um, I find once again I find that there's so much about the church. There's so much about Christianity 
uh, that's difficult for me to, um, you know, to to accept. There, I mean, on so many, there's so many different levels that it's that that to sit in a church with all this stuff around it and to f somehow be moved it seems like an achievement in some way. It's um, even though all this stuff, here I am, and, and there's something about that. that uh, it's almost like a rebellion. It's a defiance. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to try and, um, you know, I'm not a, a historian or I'm not, I'm not somebody who knows too much about theology and, and these sorts of things. Uh, or historically about the church and all of this sort of stuff. I don't want to make a case or defend the church. I, I can only say that there's something about the distance travelled from sitting there with my sceptical self in this po quite possibly completely corrupt institution and finding that I can actually walk out of there having a transcendent moment is something. You know, for me, that's something. Um, that I don't get, I, I don't get it, you know, I don't get it sitting in a park and I don't get the same thing watching a sunrise. I just, it's a different, I, I mean, I, I sometimes get the same thing listening to music. There's something about music itself that does this, that um, is, is, well, it is, is authentically transformative. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I guess that's the, the answer to that. It's, it, it is interesting how many questions have been about this. We, we yeah. have spent a lot of time on this. And you mentioned the archbishops. Uh, you were in, interviewed by Rowan Williams and subsequently by Justin yeah. Welby. That hasn't come out yet, I think. But No, that hasn't come out. So, does any part of you worry that it, it, the, the, the Christian aspect is going to sort of take over? Are you going to alienate legions of fans from earlier decades who are suddenly like, what's, what's going on with Nick Cave? Are you talking about God and Christ all the time? Do you worry about that? Um, no, I don't. My, my manager might worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> He's over there. He's just going, um, But no, I don't, I, I, I really don't worry about that. And anyway, I've been going on about this stuff for years. You know, it's just that I mentioned that in the book, um, I think maybe 30 years ago, NME uh, sat me down, the music paper, and sat me down and said, for an interview, and said, right, before we start, uh, the editor says, none of this God stuff, <laughs> right? And that was just, you know, so, so this, is not a, this is not new. Um, I, I just happened to write a, a book where I got the a beautiful opportunity through conversation with Sean O'Hagan to expand on my beliefs in that way. And, and th they were news to me, too, to some degree. That's what conversation can do. You can arrive at, you can, like, find things out about yourself. You hear yourself saying yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, the, the things that I said to, to Sean were extraordinary in a way because through the, very quickly through the course of conversation, I changed my opinions about things all the time. Um, and, you know, he, he said, well, two weeks ago you said yes, and now you're saying no. And that is the great beauty of, 
of conversation that you hear yourself say things that like, well, you know, uh, that feel like they mean something and, and others that are just patent nonsense. Um, you can't, you, you've got to get that stuff out of your head. A few years ago, you said um, as you were getting older, you were becoming more and more obsessed with sex. Is that still true? Can you speak a little about that? Just as, just as obsessed, but not as often. <laughs> okay, well, that, that is a great note uh, to end on, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we talked there about conversation. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. Uh, what we have witnessed, I think, is someone who is open, searching, and just putting himself in front of us honestly asking whatever we throw at him, which is an amazing thing to do. Uh, and it's been really thrilling to yeah, do it with been, you for the last hour and a half. It's been an absolute pleasure, Freddie. Really, thank you. Thank you for coming along. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.